there, and welcome to the Food for Thought podcast. I'm your host, Erin Hallstrom. Today's episode is in continuation of our February 5th episode, A CPG Entrepreneur's Guide to Growth. For part two today, I'm talking to Dr. James Richardson about the risks and rewards of growing a CPG brand. In the next 30 minutes, we talk about the risks entrepreneurs should and shouldn't be taking, as well as what it means to be memorable versus unique. Enjoy the episode. I have a two-pronged question for you, and it's right. about ri- it's about risks. Okay. So the first first part of the question is, what risks are food entrepreneurs taking that aren't paying off? And the second part is, what risks should they be taking instead? Mm. Yes, these are good questions. So I think. Um, one of the risks that I see people get involved in who are selling in retail, and I, I think a lot of people got sucked into it this year, uh, is doing a whole bunch of paid advertising on social media for your, your brick retail sold product line. Um, and and it, it, not only does it lose money, um, but unless you have uh, right away, um, because of the pay-per-click, um, fees and just the impression fees to get inside somebody's feed. Uh, but generally these campaigns don't do much more than create awareness. And they do it at a cost that, you know, when I look at people who tried these things, that it doesn't seem to me that you create the same level of memorability for the same amount of money as you do getting out into the community. Now, a lot of people put their money at, they took it from field marketing this year and they stuffed it into social media because they didn't know what else to do with it. And so, uh, they're learning, but generally speaking, CP, food brands early on aren't going to get much of a return when they're brand new off a lot of paid media because it takes a lot of impressions, ad impressions essentially to generate memorability that way. Uh, it takes more ad impressions in my experience to generate any kind of memorability for a new trademark. Um, and that's why like, what's frustrating <laughs> for my clients is like a, an old tired zombie brand, and there are many of them in and food company, like Andy Cap Snacks could come out of nowhere and like do an ad campaign, and it would be phenomenally more successful uh, than my client's brand that nobody's ever heard of. And that's just because, oh, well, that's an old brand, so yeah, I get that, and everyone already knew that. So it already had a base of awareness. It was simply activating that. My clients don't have any of that luxury, so you know they tend to get sucked into paid advertising um, too early, on social media when they should be doing these more achievement interactive techniques. So that's a risk that people take. It's a financial risk and it often does not pay off with food unless you have an offering that's really amenable to direct to consumer sales. And I can tell you that food is a tough one. It's a real tough one on DTC. It's never performed as well um, as beauty, um, as supplements in, in several other categories. In terms of a risk that 
founders should be taking that they're not taking. I think that um, adding people on staff before you think you can afford it <laughs> uh, so that you have people focused on, on a couple elements of outreach out of the store so that you, the, the founder, can um, be more of a band director um, and focus on fundraising and not get sucked into ops uh, is something that people don't do early enough. How early should you do it? That unfortunately has to do with your P&L and how a bunch of things look. But I'm telling you, the people who struggle are the people who have been basically not sleeping, but for all the wrong reasons. <laughs> because they are out, they're not hiring people to take over stuff that they don't particularly add much value to, like operations, making sure stuff is labeled and shipped and the distributors getting what they need and paperwork and BS. They're getting sucked into that and they have no time for things like leading the event marketing because that's what they should be doing. They're passionate about the business. Right? They need to be out in front of the public most of the time. Fundraising, things that only the founder can do. No investor wants to have a meeting with the head of marketing. <laughs> so, um, they want to meet with the founder. So uh, what happens is people get busy and they start that initial growth surge is they find themselves actually overwhelmed. This is very common. So I tell people as soon as you can barely even afford it is how I call it. <laughs> That's when you jump, you bring that part term social media part time social media person in. And you know the beauty of startups is you can multitask. These are folks who get that they're going to be asked to wear ten hats. And if they don't get that then you hire wrong. <laughs> It's like, you right. get a lot. Of, you can get, it's amazing what you can get out of 30 hours if somebody's just motivated. Yeah, and then there I can show you unmotivated bureaucrats who will, they will squander 30 hours faster than you can say squander. Yeah, there's, <laughs> there's definitely a lot of thirsty, hungry people who you know want the work and are great at the work. Um, I've yes. I've heard I, I've read this in multiple places. That and you you kind of mentioned it before with the yoga instructors that <laughs> there's an advantage well there's an advantage to take some of your greatest fans the people who have you know maybe reached out or been passionate about your product and maybe there's an opportunity to employ them because mm -hmm. they're already a fan they already like your product. Now, yeah, yeah. You know, bring them on staff because you know they already like your product and they're going to speak well of it already. Um, I, yeah, I've, I've, I've heard that several times in the last few weeks. I, I've read it and heard it several times in the last few weeks. Well, I, I, it, it's not academic to me. I've seen people do it really successfully. And, and the funny thing, Erin, is you know where this came from, this, this hiring trick is what it really amounts to. But it actually came, it came from natural behavior occurring at every trade show that ever used to happen. So uh, in the early stage universe, one of the secondary reasons, and sometimes it's the primary reason for a sales guy or a marketing person or anybody to go walk the floor and not sit at their booth is because they're looking for a job. <laughs> 
and who are you more likely to, to have success with? So somebody who's already been working in a startup environment who, like we just talked about, and I, I have overheard this at Expo West multiple times. Some person who actually has a booth over in Hall E is going to Hall D and like, oh my God, I love your product so much. You know, and I'm like, they sound like a rabid fan and they're, really, they're actually running a booth <laughs> over there. And that conversation is not often entirely innocent. It's often sort of a plug. <laughs> that's, where, you know, that's where I first noticed this, and then I saw people do it. I'm like, oh, this is amazing. Because you get 10 times the work out of people who actually love your brand. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, there's a religiosity to it. I, I also so you love gotta, you, that word, religiosity. <laughs> I like that. I mean, it doesn't – yeah, I mean, that's – it's why startups are made fun of by big companies, right? Because you go meet them at a trade show and they seem kind of goofy and they're like way too excited. Um, <laughs> they kind of sound off their meds. <laughs> um, but that, unfortunately, is a passion that gets more work out of people at low cost. At low, and that's, again, why I say the risk you've got to be taking is bringing the part-time help in or the full-time help in. Um, literally six months before you think you're going to need it is when you actually need to bring them on. That, that's what people don't realize. Because if you wait another four months, you're going to be hiring them when you're overwhelmed. And that, Aaron, is when almost every human in a management position makes a crappy hiring decision. Yep. <laughs> yep. I, can't, I yep. have lived it, and I have seen it, <laughs> and you do not want to do that. And so I, I'm going, I'll say it to the Internet right now. Just don't hire me and use my fee to get that person on board. That's how important it is. I mean, no, seriously. It, it, you can't get to a million dollars like very easily anymore with a solo program. You know, suddenly I, I've been described as that I, just me, have startup energy, and now what you said totally makes <laughs> sense. So thank you. I like that. Um, yeah, I, I am that person, employee, that it's like, Where's my off switch? Because I'm always like, oh, yeah, great idea. Yeah, I'll do this. Yeah, I'll work on that. And, yeah, I, I've been described as I have startup energy. And, um, well, just don't forget, don't, for to forget to, don't forget to negotiate for the raises as you keep assigning tests oh, well, to yourself. <laughs> you heard that, Internet. No, um, okay. So, <laughs> um, so you mentioned on a recent blog post of yours that 2021 will likely be more competitive for early-stage CPG startups. Why is that? So there's a couple things, but the number one problem is that due to the surge in CPG volumes, which is all the vast majority have gone, has gone to the legacy incumbents, they already dominated the shelf space, but they've actually been assigned by the major chains even more shelf space so that they don't go out of stock. Um, so the big chains that drive most of the shelf space availability in the United States, because most of the traffic is there, they have actually assigned more shelf space to the non-early stage, non-emerge challenger brands. There's literally less, there's less linear feet to fight for. Uh, and, and until that surge dies down post-pandemic, post-vaccination, it is just going to be harder. It's going to be – the line is the same. The line to get into Kroger is the same. Uh, it's – and even though that, actually the line may be a little smaller as people sort of freak out and don't launch 
Um, but it's still hard to get in uh, and get that space. And so you've got to have a better compelling rationale to get in and get good space. Um, but also for companies that are also you know, already established in the seven figures, it is a more challenging environment to add items now, unless you're one of my lucky clients in something like the daily department. <laughs> and the daily is doing so badly, Aaron. It is such a horrible year in the daily of a supermarket that I, I, as I talk to you, I'm thinking, why am I not launching a brand? Because I could probably take half a case <laughs> with no slotting. So, anyway, um, that's about the only place that's really good. Um, so you've got shelf constraints, but also you have co-manufacturer constraints. If you're just starting and growing fast and you didn't pre-book your run rate at an expanded rate, you, know, you may be picking up the phone, metaphorically speaking, and find out that your co-man is booked. I mean, I have clients who are in fairly capacity constraint categories, and in those categories, I mean, we're talking startups, are, they're getting one run a year. Now, that's terrifying, right? So that will get a little easier, I think, with the pandemic easing um, because some of that private label volume which is filling up those plants to some extent, uh, will we'll attenuate. At least it always has with every recession I've seen. So, uh, so it's more on the supply and shelf situation, and that's creating more competition for 2021. I could go on and on and on about why life is just getting more competitive for early-stage CBG startups. That's why I wrote the book, is because I want people to think more like a, like a high-octane kind bar kind of business early on because if they do, if they embed that in the DNA of their startup, they are going to do so much better. Uh, and they will be able to outflank any Me Too's that are ripping them off because they read, you know, a couple of PR pieces and said, oh, I could do that. <laughs> Which is what we see like it's more competitive. <laughs> like, um, because of the internet, it's very easy to find out what's going on in terms of innovation. That used to be a thing. You remember that, I think. Uh, that used to be a thing, just trying to figure out what launched. That was a thing. That took research. <laughs> so, yep. <laughs> now people are literally out there advertising themselves. So uh, you, want to, you want to be set up with the most optimal operations design, everything today, so that if two people come and rip you off, basically, that you're still going to scale first. That's what I tell people. You talk a lot in your book about the why behind the brand mm. and its importance. Can you, explain the, uh, can you explain that a little more and give us the why for its importance, like what you did there? <laughs> the, meta, the meta why. Yeah, yes, why the, the why. why. Yes. <laughs> so the problem that I encountered that I've encountered with early stage companies, um, and it's, it's like a weird alternate universe version of the problem that big company innovation teams have when they try to go predict three years in advance what people are going to do with a widget. <laughs> um, it's that uh, whether it's a forecasted prediction of demand and the demand drivers based on a whole bunch of supposition and a whole bunch of research not based on experience of the product, <laughs> hypothetical basis or whether it's a startup who is just deciding in a bubble that this is the flavor and this is the, this is the product. Um, 
you, until you do some initial consumer research, you don't know why people are repeating. And repeat purchase, uh, more specifically extended repeat, is, as I talk about in the book, it's really the secret sauce when you can create it and sustain it over multiple years. That's what drives exponential growth without pumping 30 and $40 million into businesses. Now, if you know a lot of bankers who have money, you're welcome to do that. Most of you don't. So you don't really have any other option than to do the cash-efficient way. And the cash-efficient way is to, is to create a business built um, off of 80% plus repeating on an annual basis and probably 50% on a monthly basis. And people are repeating, habituating to your business. They're buying it literally every month for a couple of years. That's what you need to it, that's what you need to create on the ground as an undercapitalized business. So how do you, you have to know what the symbolism is, what the language is, what the sensory cues are that, are, that your habitual fans have figured out, and don't assume that you know what it is just because you invented it, and that's the big sort of, oh my God. <laughs> um, the innovator is the least qualified person to tell anybody, including himself or herself, why the business is succeeding at the level of product consumer engagement. Uh, I don't say that just because I'm an arrogant social scientist. I've lived that um, gap, that gap in understanding. And when you don't understand it, you go do crazy things with your package symbolism that doesn't connect with people. Um, and you go and you spend five years selling kale chips because you were never listening. You're only listening to yourself. Um, and kale chips don't scale because they're freaking disgusting. <laughs> and, if you gave, and if you gave a handful of kale chips to a random sample of even 50 people in the general public, almost all of them will spit them out. And, and to me, that's the, that's the golden sort of Uncle Larry test, which is, oh my God, it's disgusting. Now, if you go to Expo West, you can find a thousand people who love kale chips. And that's the problem. <laughs> so you've got to understand objectively how to figure out what's driving repeat, and then you have to figure out a playbook that's going to find more of those people and spread the message that they figured out. And it's often not the message that led you to start the business. So in my book, I talk about this. I created this sort of qualitative segmentation, and it was really just to explain one thing. Most people who start food companies are geeks. They're category geeks. All right? um, that's great. That means they were the best, most highly qualified to determine whether something was going to be a new incremental addition to the category because they've been geeking out on the category. Right? The problem with it is <laughs> they're geeks. And, and geeks generally, like myself, um, we're not very good at communicating uh, traditionally to a broader non-geek audience. Right? And so the beautiful thing is the early consumers who are not geeks at all, I can tell you that, very few of them are going to be geeks, especially when you get up into the million-dollar range. You're going, to, you're going to have engaged a whole bunch of people who are not geeks in your category. They figured out something really cool about your brand. And I come back to Chobani. It's my favorite example, not because I've been talking about Chobani. They don't talk about this, which is that you know, Greek yogurt launched in 1998 in Whole Foods as an ethnic food. It didn't go anywhere. Nobody cares. There's no audience for people who want Icelandic yogurt, Bulgarian yogurt, French yogurt. No. <laughs> That's not how Americans buy yogurt or a lot of other things. <laughs> so, and it's not a path to scale. 
right? Now, Faye, that's just an arrogant Greek food company. They don't care. They didn't care about the U.S. market. It was totally irrelevant to them. I mean, it was kind of nice and it was fun because they got to go to New York <laughs> every year. But other than that, it was a total rounding error. They never took it seriously. They didn't do any research. Now, Chibani didn't necessarily do a lot of research. Hamdi didn't necessarily research, but he did um, one thing that was super lucky was he decided to, to launch at ShopRite New York, which is just about the craziest possible place you could have come up with, right, in upper New York State. Like, what? what? <laughs> and the thing started selling like crazy. And if you talk to those early consumers, as I have, you find out that, oh, well, this is just a protein-heavy replacement for cereal. And that's what, drew that, that's what created that explosion. So again, the consumers, an unsuspecting audience you never would have imagined, was actually the magical audience. <laughs> it was not what the yogurt geek would have said about Greek yogurt. They would have given you some crazy other story. So you've got to figure that why out because that is what you are, is going to become the engine of your playbook. And once you can cut and paste that playbook, you can take it to every market in the country. Um, so that's why it's also important. I mean, the meta why that you asked for is really the fact that you're undercapitalized for the most part. Even if you've got a million dollars or two million in, in money, you're still undercapitalized, right? So you have got to really build a business that's most of the revenue is coming from extended repeat. And it, this is a standard that if, I'm sure people at Bitco are just laughing their off right now because, you know, basically big brands don't generate that when they launch fly extensions. It's a joke. Most of them have to repeat rates of 10% or less. I don't know if you're aware of that. It's abysmal. It's pathetic, right? <laughs> so the numbers I threw out at you, not only are they attainable, I see them in my clients' businesses, but they keep happening. And they happen with brands that are highly innovative, where people build memorability into the business, work the out-of-store angle. Um, and this doesn't necessarily cost a lot of money. But you, you also do have to listen <laughs> to your <laughs> And when I started this, Aaron, I, I had this weird, naive assumption that entrepreneurs were like anthropologists. They would politely listen. And no, they're, they're not that different than um, the big general manager at Kraft Heinz, who thinks he has all the answers in advance. <laughs> they're, they're actually not that different in that one respect. The difference is they can actually pivot, and it's easier to convince them to whoop, stop, listen, Iterate. Once the big guy at Kraft Heinz has launched his line, uh, he doesn't want to hear about iteration. All he wants to hear is ka-ching because he's going to get fired. <laughs> so, <laughs> that ego is not an addressable, coachable one at that point. But the entrepreneur is a little more coachable. So I hope that explained the why and the meta why. I want to close this episode talking about something that you bring up in your book regarding a brand being memorable versus being mm. unique. Can you explain what that means for CPT entrepreneurs? Unique is this, it's a very compelling word to the liberal arts crowd. And there is a growing group of entrepreneurs who fit that bill. Um, and I think people, and geeks do actually have a tendency to want to do something really unique. I remember this from my academic days. <laughs> I want to be so unique and snowflakey. Uh, the problem with unique is that true uniqueness, like in a category context, it's, it's just a form of rarity. It's an extreme form of rarity, right? The problem is that by itself doesn't tell you anything. 
about a, a product line's potential or a brand's potential. Um, being really, really rare uh, isn't really correlated with its success at all. And that's because, Aaron, most rare stuff, when you hand it to a larger, broader audience of non-geeks in the category, it just looks freaking weird. And so it triggers to them weird, unappealing, not even going to try it. And and it's a large percentage you're going to have that reaction. The more rare and weird it is. So unique really raises the specter of, oh, my God, I just had this weird thing. It's got weird ingredients. It's got a weird name. It's got a weird texture. It's got a, you know, and I, you know, I'm basically describing tempeh still, <laughs> which is my favorite punchy thing. Everything about it is completely weird to, to most Americans <laughs> and unpleasant unless drowned in a specific sauce. So um, what you want is an interesting, competitively different thing so different, not necessarily unique, but different enough that it's not so weird that I don't want to try it. And then that is what uh, is sort of, to me, the crucible of creating a memorable brand or memorable product line. It's got some kind of difference from something else in the category. And it doesn't have to be very extreme at all. And I talk about in the book that the difference really needs to tap into a mass market outcome. And that's when things get really exciting. That's when you can get halo top kind of velocities. When you chase a really boring outcome, but what you're doing is selling a really memorable, tasty, modern of way to achieve that outcome. And the ability, the potential here to overthink and overanalyze and overinnovate is massive there. And that's what you'll see at, at Expo West when it starts up again is just booths full of overthink. <laughs> that's what I would call like. And I, a PhD gets. Excuse somebody of overthink. <laughs> and I have one. So I know it when I see it. <laughs> um, and I also know someone who's not listening to their audience, but they're just talking to themselves in a the mirror. Um, what you want to do is create something memorable, memorable that's memorable within ordinary people's brains and stomachs, in their brains specifically, but excites their stomachs first, um, creates memorability, um, but isn't actually chasing real uniqueness. That, that's not the point. That's an artistic goal that doesn't lead to scale, although it may lead to enjoyment. I, I, can't, I, can't, uh, I can't rule that out. If someone wanted <laughs> to get in touch with you and do more of a one-on-one, um, really reap the rewards of your skills and um, what you are all about, how could they do that? Well, I, I welcome early stage companies to, to go to my website first, which is uh, premiumgrowthsolutions.com, and go to the Founders Resources page, and, and there's a lot of free stuff there. I keep adding to it. Um, all my media appearances, podcasts, episodes, everything's there. So there's a lot of um, tidbits and nuggets to enjoy, webinars, courses, all sorts of yums. Um, and... Uh, if that inspires you want to reach out, go to, go to my services page, and, and you can learn how to, how to do that there. Otherwise, I wish everybody you know, the best of luck as we get out of this pandemic. For everyone listening to the Food for Thought podcast today, thank you for tuning in. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and just about everywhere you can listen to a podcast. 
Be sure to tune in next time as we talk more about the stories behind the headlines of the food and beverage industry. Take care. Have a great day.